Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, the only podcast that reviews horror films with five or fewer reviews in Rotten Tomatoes. I'm going to continue to say that. I hope that's still true. I mean, you know, imitation is a form of flattery. So if someone steals our idea, we got there first. We, we have the copyright. I'm not worried about that. I am Matt Monagle. I am one half of your Matt hosts. I am joined, as always, by my buddy, Matt Zanotto, who is here to talk movies. How you doing, Matt? Pretty good. Imagine if I wasn't here to talk movies. I mean, I don't know what else you talk about, but you're you're you've got you've got depth. You've got layers, man. I don't want to put um, you in a corner. Breakfast not being acceptable for dinner food. Um, I can talk about New Jersey. I can talk about Demon Wind, but that's a movie. So now we're back to movies. So I have two Screamo. things. I have two other I, things. I, anything Screamo related, I feel like is probably pretty good. With that's you as true. Well. If you want to mm-hmm. talk specifically pop punk covers, that that's that's me. Pop punk covers. That, that's that's my jam. So that is my other podcast. Emo Matt talks pop punk covers. Follow me on TikTok. Never because I didn't do that yet. Monocle, it, let's get back on track. <laughs> I was going to say, if it sounds like there's really not enough depth or, you know, variety of topics here between the two of us, that's why we bring on a guest. That's why we bring somebody else to sort of round out our inefficiencies. And this week we're bringing on somebody who likes us so much. They already brought one of us onto their podcast. So this is, I think, special, special acknowledgement. It's a mutual admiration society right here, Donato. It is indeed. I will do the honors as always. I am bringing to you one half of the Paper Street podcast team. I am bringing to you a filmmaker for Suburban Ghost. I am also bringing to you the infinitely better half of previous guest, Brad McCarg, Miss Becky Sayers. Becky, thank you for coming on. Hey, thank you for the introduction. Like we said, a many halves, but I am a whole, a whole Becky Sayers. We can confirm <laughs> Becky is a whole. We have seen Becky in whole. I have met Becky at Fantasia one time. That was, I think that was the first time we ever met. Oh, and yeah. we were there with Zena covering for uh, Dread Central. And that was a, that was a fun little meeting, I would say. Uh, we, we we had some enjoyment. <laughs> I remember meeting you. I think we met in um, this really bizarre uh, venue that was like a punk bar that was very precarious. <laughs> like you had to step over um, seats of vehicles to get into the bar. It, it looked hmm. kind of like a crack den. Not going to lie, but then when you got inside, it was really awesome. There were a bunch of like satanic, uh, like graffiti art <laughs> things on the wall. But that's that's suitably where I met Matt. And I remember the first time we met, we we recognized each other. And then I think I started we started to like shake hands and we're like, nah. And then we just hugged. <laughs> big old hugs. We don't do we yeah. don't do that around here. We know each other. We are a big, happy family at Certified Forgotten and and farther and uh yeah, listen, you've uh, you've been dealing with me for the last year of the pandemic on Zoom. So that is that that is <laughs> where we have gotten to. Congratulations. You've survived. And now this is your life. It's one of the more underrated elements, I think, of making friends on Twitter is like, how do I touch this person from the Internet? Like, do what what what, what sort of physical interaction are we at? I mean, I know all your deepest, darkest secrets, but I've never actually seen you in person before. So. That's that is true. Uh, it is an awkward thing meeting someone online like that you knew online for the first time. And like Brad and I knew each other online before <laughs> we met, too. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a whole nother story I won't get into. <laughs> well, maybe we will. I'm about to ask you know. a bunch of questions yeah, about yourself. Yeah. So you might be able to weave it in a little bit. Sure. So let's start then. Let's Becky, let's talk about you. Let's not talk about Brad. Fuck Brad. Let's talk about Becky. Um <laughs> 
But, you know, usually we like to start the conversations with our guests. So kind of like that early days of getting into horror and what those first films were, those first connections were. So let's start there. What do you remember? I mean, you're raising like a kick-ass young horror fan. So where do you remember your kick-ass early days of being a horror fan? Oh, man. Uh, I think Matt Donato. I have to clarify which Matt I just realized. Um, He'll probably appreciate this uh, given his origin story as well. Uh, the first horror movie that I really remember connecting with was uh, like the Chucky franchise. As a kid, I would go to the local VHS store. VHS store. Is that the right word? What are the video rental stores? Yeah, movie store, but VHS store. store works too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, it wasn't a blockbuster or a Hollywood video. It was whatever we had there. I think it was called Alpha Video. Anyway, we would go there and I was always super attracted to the Child's Play movies. And I specifically remember my older brother, he was about three years older than me. He was crying in the store, begging my dad, like, please don't let her rent this movie again. I'm so scared of it. And I remember I was probably about four or five at this time. Uh, So definitely wasn't age appropriate, but my dad is like, whatever, he doesn't care. Um, So uh, he would always let me rent it and tell my brother to just toughen up and deal with it. Uh, so that was one of my early introductions to horror. And, um, I think it became a really common thing to do with my family. I grew up in a rural area, you know, 10 acres, and we didn't have all the TV channels that other people did. So the thing we did for fun is we would go, uh, rent movies and we had a huge VHS collection at home too. We had like probably 800 movies or so, which was a lot more than any of my friends. I know that pales in comparison to a lot of people that probably listen to your podcast. Uh, but, you know, growing up in Maple Valley, Washington, that was something to behold. Uh, so that was what we did for fun. And I would always be attracted to the horror section. And I guess there's a couple other movies that I would say were really formative. Um, one of them is the... Um, this is weird, but the the making of the Thriller music video, I don't know if either of you have seen this with John Landis. No. Oh, okay. Um, so. No. I, I mean, I yeah. know Landis did it, but I didn't know there was a documentary gun. Yeah, there was a documentary. And I don't know, for some reason, we ended up with the VHS tape of this documentary. I, I think they got it at Costco. <laughs> uh, anyway, but it went through you know, it had the full thriller music video, which of course is awesome. And I love the werewolf transformation. I remember being terrified of it, but also amazed by it. And the behind the scenes documentary, when all the detail had tons of interviews with the John Landis, and I just became fascinated at the magic of movies and especially horror movies. How it was like, it was really just this big trick. And uh, so from there, I just, started getting more and more into um, how movies were made. And then, you know, the last movie I will mention is Scream. Like, I saw that, let's say I was probably like 10, 11 when it came out. And that's kind of what set me off on my path for true appreciation for horror, because I wanted to see all the movies that they were referencing. Uh, so, yeah, that's my my origin story. <laughs> Well, first of all, we don't we don't shame uh, video collections here on Certified Forgotten. I think I own 
gosh, I think now in, like with adult purchasing power, I think I own like seven DVDs or Blu-rays. I just, you know, <laughs> collecting has never been a huge thing for me. So I would immediately get laughed out of any, anybody in any horror community for the, the few number of movies that I collect. But, you know, I know like 800 to me, like, man, even at my peak when I was in high school and you'd, you'd cruise the, the dollar store and pick up copies of anything you could, cause they would sell like five for $20, which was like, oh my gosh, what a deal back in the day. You know, I, I only probably had 50, 60, something like that in my collection. So, you know, you, you, your collection expands to fit as much time as you have to watch the stuff. So if you can, if you got time to watch 800 movies, watch 800 movies, if you got time to watch seven, you know, buy seven. I also really enjoy the fact that at four or five, Becky was traumatizing somebody else with child's play. And for me, it was like eight or nine. I did the math recently. I think I was like eight or nine. And that was when I first got traumatized by Chucky. So like, you were like a whole half of me ahead of me, uh, just really getting into the child's play. And I, meanwhile, I'm like approaching 10 years old. And that scared me out of horror for a good like five, six years. <laughs> yeah. And I think I knew it was I would watch horror movies with my dad. And I think he let me know it was OK because he would always laugh at everything, no matter how gory or scary it was. He was laughing. And so then I was like, oh, OK, this is supposed to be fun. This is not real. This isn't something I should be terrified of. And, you know, when we watched Scream, you know, and I was, like I said, 10 or 11, uh, after the opening scene when Drew Barrymore gets killed, it was probably one of the most graphic things I had seen up until that point. And I remember my dad turning to me and goes, do you want to keep watching this movie? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I do. And he's like, okay, cool, cool. And I remember also being scared by Event Horizon around that same time. I feel like that came out around the same oh, time yeah. as Scream. But ooh. Yeah, Donato and I have talked wow. on the show about being terrified by Independence Day. And here you are like rocking Scream <laughs> and Event Horizon. So it's, you know, you know, you, you, yeah, we, I, we were we were gentle boys, Donato. We were, was, we were gentle boys. Was it the release me part that scared yep. you? Oh, 100%. Okay, yeah. I, yeah, there was, I, it I was that all that. the way. I can, I can totally appreciate it. I love that movie and I loved it as a kid. I thought it was so fun, but I can see how that scene would stick with you. Well, let me ask Becky, because a lot of times when we, a lot of our guests are horror journalists or they're, they're critics or writers, people that kind of like, they, they let that, that those early horror movies latch onto them. And then they're like, I want to write about it. Right. Like I want to analyze and discuss why I'm afraid, but you've talked, you know, we know you, so we know, we know where your interests lay, but you've also talked um, about how at a young age you were fascinated by how they did this stuff. You know, they were like, they were these sleight of hands. They were these things where they were, you know, they were tricking you and they were coming up with these creative gore effects and things and you wanted to know how it worked. So when did you make your, like, what, what was your first film? What was that first thing that you, you, you had an iPhone, you had a VHS camcorder, something like that. When was the first time you were like, fuck it, I'm going to do this for myself? Yes, it was a VHSC camcorder. So the C stood for compact. It was basically kind of like, um, looks similar to a mini DV tape that would fit inside uh, a VHS tape, if that makes sense. It was uh, a thing that they only made for a few years, I think. Uh, but that was my first uh, camera. I remember begging my parents for it when I was 13. And that was uh, my 13th birthday present. Because how how the actual filmmaking aspect got started is I was at a sleepover with some friends and somebody had a camcorder that they had brought to the sleepover. And then we decided to reenact scream scenes from scream as, and, and record it. And then 
instantly I was hooked. And like from that moment on, I was just, all I did was research on different types of cameras that I could get and what would fit within the budget that I thought my parents would spend on my birthday. Uh, so, so starting <laughs> the at producers, 13, your producer's budget. <laughs> yep. And then I, we just would start off making things that were basically spoofs or really bad imitations of, I know what you did last summer, urban legend, all the slashers of that era, because we were just trying to imitate and recreate what we saw. Um, and then we actually made when I was probably about 14 or 15, we made a feature film over the course of like a year. <laughs> we would shoot it on weekends. I would go spend the night at my friends. And every time we would like film a, a section of it and it took us forever. Um, someday I will show um, Brad hasn't even seen it because I need to get a VHS player so I can watch it. But it was really bad. It was called Soul Survivor. And it was basically the amalgamation of every single really shitty late 90s, early 2000s slasher you've ever seen. I was going to say, it seems to me that that is the, the thing you drop on the special features of your first film release, right? Like you make your first movie, it gets put on Blu-ray, and then you add that full length feature film you made as a 14 year old to that. Right. M. Knight did that on, on, I think, the Signs DVD. He had like one of his first films he made when he was like 10, 11, 12. But no, I don't know if I ever well, want somebody always, to see um, it. <laughs> I mean, well, that, that was like Eli Roth, too. But I mean, Eli's was uh, his like ma- fast food mascot kind of like Reservoir Dogs take. It is bonkers. And, you know, I know Eli Roth's name is not great right now, but. It is one of those examples of a one of these artists that it continually comes up. It comes up all the time where you get to a certain point and everyone just does want to see that first thing you did and that first thing that like exists somewhere in an archive. And I've seen that, you know, I forget what it's called, but it is just bonkers in that sense where he takes all these fast food mascots and tries to recreate that kind of Tarantino vibe. And it's wild. It's crazy. And you see that and you go like, how did how did that get here? So. I think someday when we get to, again, see that special feature of a Becky uh, Sayers film and all of a sudden we're seeing that 10 year old soul survivors. Also, is it spelled <laughs> like soul as in singular or soul as in S-O-U-L? That's a really good question because there is another film called Soul Survivor, a horror film around that time with S-O-U-L. This was S-O-L-E. Uh, the other soul mm. survivor came out after we had named ours. <laughs> Yes. But one of the the funny things at the time is I had no editing equipment and like no way to like digitize it. Uh, And so the, we would do all in camera editing. So if we did a take and we screwed up, we would rewind it and have to stop it at the exact right point and record over it, which I think taught me a lot later on about filmmaking because I had to, constantly come up with ways to make things work and like I couldn't with music sometimes like if we wanted score to play in a scene we would literally just play it in the room (laughs) you know on a on a on some speakers during the scene it was (laughs) it was uh it taught me to be creative I guess we'll put it that way and then when I finally got a digital camera in high school I was ecstatic to be able to actually do nonlinear editing and put in special effects and sound design my movies. It was amazing. 
Well, let me ask about kind of the how that evolved over time too, right? Because like you're making films throughout high school, throughout college, into your professional world. You're working on scripts and things of that nature. You know, I we talk a lot. Everybody in kind of the horror industry knows that it's it's a difficult thing to break into. You know, you you build up a lot of connections over time, and you're constantly constantly honing your craft. There's a million like horror film screenwriting competitions and things where you can really get feedback. So. As, as you're kind of, you know, you have a really amazing short to your name. You've got some projects that are in various degrees of exploration. Now, how do you continue to, to hone your craft if you're not actively engaged in in making something at any given moment? Or you have a couple of things that you're juggling and you're like, you know, I, I there's stuff I want to try and I don't want to, you know, that thing about you always need to have like five projects that you're working on, right? And hope that one of them will pay off. So how do you kind of juggle all of that on top of the life that you have to lead in order to make money and afford rent and all those kind of things? That's a good question. Uh, I'll let you know when I figure it out. Uh, okay, <laughs> no, uh, I guess I am a big believer in having multiple projects going because I don't like forcing myself into a corner of creativity and be like, I have to finish this one thing right now when I'm not necessarily inspired to do it. Um, which is, there's pros and cons to that approach. Like sometimes it's, it is really nice to have like hard deadlines or set parameters as an artist. Cause it's like, if you have kind of this blue ocean ahead of you, then it's really intimidating. So sometimes I like those parameters. Like if there's a particular contest or something I'm aiming for, that's great. I will sit down, buckle down and, and do it. Um, but I like having multiple things because sometimes you end up working and working on a script and you, you don't really get anywhere and you're like, you just bang your head against the wall. And then maybe a year down the road, you finally figure it out. Like something in your life happens and you're like, oh, I have so much more insight into what I was exploring now than I did then. This is the right time for me to make this movie or write this movie. Uh, so I, I do believe in having multiple projects, but it is really hard to balance with full-time job, a kid, um, and everything else in life. But I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to find corners in your day that you can reclaim for yourself. Uh, and just making sure you have you give yourself the permission to have that time. Uh, that's something I struggle with a lot. Because if I, you know, neglect parenting duties or job duties, I'm constantly living the cycle of guilt of never doing enough. Um, I'm not a good mom. I'm not good at my job. I constantly go through this. Um, but I have to remember that I need this time. I need the creative time. Otherwise I am an inferior version of myself. I am never operating at my full capacity if I don't have this creative outlet to do these things. So by carving out time in the day and saying, I'm, I'm giving this time to myself to produce, pursue these things I love. I'm actually making myself better at everything else because I'm, operating as a full person, not as this individual that's carving out sections of myself here and there. Hopefully that made sense. It was kind of abstract. <laughs> no, I mean, it's you're part of the day job club. You know, me and Mon will talk about all the time in the sense that we talk to a lot of creatives on the podcast and in our lives, you know, our friends, everyone that we kind of interact with online. So many of us are now, you know, part of the quote unquote day job club. And we pursue those creative outlets on the side just for that very thing you said. Like I have my day job and I am able to go about my day there because I know at night I get to do the thing that I actually love and I get to do the thing that my day job pays for. 
because everything goes hand in hand, you know, like I wouldn't have been to move to L.A. if I didn't do it through my day job. So I have that to thank to get to L.A. I have that to thank to even to get to New York, as I've said many times in the podcast. So my day job has been great to me in that sense. But if I didn't have my writing, if I didn't have the film criticism, all that stuff that I do at night and the things that I say, you know, I'm doing the day job so I can do the other thing. I would not be okay doing the day job without that other thing. I would have to figure something else out because doing that day job alone would be the ultimate soul suck on me. And, you know, it does eat away at me every now and then. And you can tell the days that, especially for me, I have a day where I can't write because I just have to do my desk work all day. And all of a sudden, at the end of the day, I'm like, wow, I don't feel as good as I usually do. And it's simple. I just didn't get to do that outlet. Like you said, Becky, I I didn't get to have that creative outlet today. And it's so important. And I never want to, you know, kind of fall into that trap of, uh, you know, I'll do my creative passion tomorrow. I'm just going to buckle down work, do do the hard labor right now. And uh, someday I'll get to my creative where it's like, nope, I'm going to do both. Because if I'm not doing both, I do not feel great about myself. Which also might be a problem, but still. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the cool things about being a creative person, whatever it is your pursuit is, and having a day job that is not related to it, is that your your creativity then is just for you. You're not beholden to anyone. It's not at the mercy of a paycheck. Like You can make the movie, you can write the way you want, you can podcast the way you want. And you don't have to answer to someone and you don't have to worry about, oh, if I do things the wrong way, am I going to get fired off this project? Are they going to go with somebody else instead? And so I think that there's a lot of benefits to having a, a day job that is completely independent so that your creative pursuits can be just for you. They can be exactly what you want and you don't have to answer to anybody. That said... I would kill to be paid to make movies. So uh, um, there's the benefits. There's silver lining, of course. But uh, yeah, uh, if if somebody said, like, I'll, I'll pay you to write Lifetime movies. Hell yeah, I would do that. Well, let me ask as a, as a last question then before we go and talk about this movie. Becky, you'd said that when you first started making movies, you were focused, like I think everybody is when they first start making movies, about imitating what they see on screen, playing around with the concepts you saw other filmmakers kind of toying with. So my million dollar question for you is at this point in your career, obviously you've evolved to the point where you have your own stories to tell. So how would you describe what a Becky Sayers movie looks like? What is What are the themes, what are the ideas and the concepts that you're going to be playing with in the years to come? I really, so I'm going to start my answer focused on horror because that's what I'm most familiar with and comfortable in. And a big reason why I like the horror genre is it's it's the genre of outsiders where it's a place that it's almost expected that you're going to explore things that are maybe outside of the mainstream or where you're going to push buttons. And I love that. I love pushing buttons. I love movies with something to say. Um, so to me, I always love using genre to kind of explore themes I'm personally interested in. Um, So I guess my, my films, I, they're always exploring something else, even if on the surface they look like pretty um, like just a straightforward movie that's thrilling or whatever. But I, 
I always want there to be something more going on, whether it be um, a, a personal relationship dynamic that I'm I'm trying to figure out or something that just really pisses me off. That's probably most of my writing is I get really pissed off about a topic. <laughs> and then I'm like, I got to do something about this. I can't write an angry letter to the world. So I'm going to do it through a script. And so I hope that that's, I guess, what movies I will make. But I also, I mean, at the same time, also just like making things that are fun and entertaining. Um, so uh, but but to me, there's always got to be something else going on underneath the surface, even if it is like a straightforward, fun movie that doesn't have an obvious social commentary. Uh, I at least want the characters to be someone that you identify with and can can relate to. Um, and there's another level of something going on underneath. And plus, you can dress Brad up in a Sasquatch costume and let Gwen bash him over the head. So, I mean, like, that's a win-win for everyone right there. Exactly. Exactly. I The mallet represented uh, the patriarchy. And no, I'm <laughs> kidding. That was just that was just pure randomness. <laughs> but you can't do that's a right. fantastic it's, it's our best job to bumper. Tease <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> We're in a uh, post-literary criticism world, right? And that applies to film. So you make the meaning, yeah. not me. It's not my job. Yep. Yep. You're just the author. What do you know? Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's take that as our cue then to dive into the movie that you brought to us today. And we'll see if maybe this ties into something that uh, something that got you angry or some extra level that you wanted to explore, too. So when we come back, we're going to be talking about Before the Fall. Stick around. Hey there, listeners. We've got just a short bump for you this week. We're actually going to take a second and shout out a new newsletter by patron and friend of the show, Amelia Emberwing. So Amelia has started a new weekly newsletter that's going to be talking about things that exist at the intersection of pop culture and social change. Her weekly newsletter is a combination of the two. She's going to provide links and directions on how to take action on local issues, as well as discussions around trending pop culture. So if you need your pop culture with a side a little side dish of activism, or you need your activism with a bit of a pop culture blend, we'd encourage you to sign up at newsletter.picketywitch.com. That's newsletter.picketywitch.com and support her in her endeavor. You know, these two things are always complementary. Pop culture and social change have always gone hand in hand. And Emilia's going to be there at the forefront, sharing good ideas and keeping us engaged. And on that note, let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back. So this week on the podcast, we are talking about 2008's Before the Fall. Uh, this is a Spanish language film that is, um, it's, a, it's two things at once. It's got flavors of an end of the world type film, like um, These Final Days or whatever the name of the Australian film that I always forget the name of is. And it has a little bit of a serial killer vibe as well. You have uh, your main character is named Alejandro, played by Victor Clavijo, and he is sort of a dead end 30 something guy who still lives with his home in a small Spanish village. And then one day they get a notice from the government through their television that they they, they basically uh, they Armageddon when nobody was paying attention. An asteroid was going to hit the Earth. They tried to blow it up with space crews. They failed. And now the Earth is set to be destroyed in three days. So Alejandro and his mother go to kind of look after um, his nieces and nephews, uh, their his sibling, his uh, brother, and his sister-in-law were out traveling at this time, so they're going to go look after the kids until the parents come home. 
and they learn that there is somebody who's broken out of prison because basically society has fallen apart um, that has a dark and mysterious tie to Alejandro and his brother and who might be coming to look for revenge. So three days until the end of the earth and the last person that you want to see shows up on your front door. This is a film that was directed by F. Javier Gutierrez. It was it played at a variety of film festivals. It played at everything from Berlin Air to Sitkiss. If you want to know like what kind of a range this movie has in terms of the audience that it attracts. And there's a, there's a lot here. There's a lot. It is a, it is kind of a quiet movie, but it has a lot of different depth and subtext to it. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, but as we always start with Becky, I want to hear from you. You brought this film, you picked it. You said, this is the one I want to talk about. What made this movie, the one that you wanted to bring on the show? So I saw this at ScreamFest, you know, during its festival run back, I think it hit ScreamFest in 2009, but it came out in 2008 in Europe. Um, And I wanted to talk about it because I saw it and I loved it. I dug all of the themes and I think there's a lot of interesting things going on. And then nobody's seen this movie. I haven't, like, I've never encountered another human being who's actually, had actually seen it. So I was even on a panel about apocalyptic cinema and, you know, a bunch of film geeks and nobody had seen this movie. Nobody even heard of this movie. So when um, you approached me about coming on Certified Forgotten, it was one of the first movies that came to mind uh, just because I love talking about it whenever I have the chance. And like I said, uh, it didn't really get a lot of love and appreciation despite having a pretty prestigious film festival run. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, you know, it played at the highbrow stuff. It played at the genre stuff and like the good genre stuff, like Sitkiss is the mm-hmm. good genre yep. stuff. So the path that this paved to get to um, domestic audiences here in the States is, is pretty good. Not to mention the fact that this, this has a bit of a pedigree, right? Like Gutierrez was coming off a pretty high, high uh, recognition festival film that had him in talks for a bunch of American stuff. At one point he was the guy that was going to bring the crow reboot. Like, all right, you know, raise your hand in Hollywood. If you've been tapped to reboot the crow at one point, (laughs) every single person raises their hand, but he was in the mix for that. Um, At one point, Wes Craven wanted him for a Hills have eyes remake as well. So he was kind of buzzy. The film was produced by Antonio Banderas. So like it has sort of that like Spanish, you know, you need that person that championed the del Toro or the Banderas to be like, here's the movie. Everybody watched the movie. So it had all of that stuff working for it, but you're right. Like it, it had never been on my radar prior to you recommending it for the show. And when I went and looked at it, I had to search like five different ways to be 100% sure that I was looking at the right movie because the poster does this film. Absolutely. No fucking justice. Agreed. A hundred percent. And it's hard to find on streaming platforms. That's, I haven't been able to rewatch. I rewatched it for this, but I hadn't actually seen it since its festival run simply because I couldn't track it down. And mm-hmm. it's finally, I it's on Apple TV right now. For anybody that wants to watch Apple TV or iTunes, you can rent it via some Apple conglomerate thing. And I'm not yeah. a, I'm not a Mac person. So that's, that was a big deal for me to have to install that on one of my devices. Just saying the things I do for you. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate it. No, but that, it, it was bizarre, though, because, you know, I, I'll get into the conversation later about why it was forgotten. Like we do always kind of close on that question. And I definitely have thoughts of why it was. But watching it back, 
it even kind of had shades of, you know, you, you watch some of Nacho Vigalando's films and again, extraterrestrial. It's the same kind of dramatic environment in an apocalyptic scenario where Nacho chose aliens. This shows, again, getting Armageddon, which is now get, that's how we're going to refer, <laughs> refer to it. But I was, again, not ready to be taken by something of this nature. And I think it came out at the right time period where for me, I wouldn't have seen it anyway because I just wasn't at my game at the point. Uh, But, you know, going back and going backwards after seeing Rings, which is (laughs) Mr. Gutierrez's other directorial credit, which he didn't get the crow. He didn't get all the other American things, but God damn it, he got Rings. So uh, congratulations in a way, I guess. Maybe. No. But going backwards, it was bizarre in a way to see that before the fall led to rings in a way because i don't see many correlations i don't see many filmmaking techniques that were really carried over so i definitely like before the fall a lot better too i want to say that out there 100 i don't like rings rings is bad i rewatched it because becky was a trooper and said oh i'm watching rings for the podcast too just want to make sure i see everything and i was like oh son of a bitch i have to watch rings don't i so i did i watched rings today i watched before the fall today Rings did not hold up even for hating it at the time, but to see before the fall to go backward like that, it's it starts that weird conversation of just how filmmakers get noticed. And again, they got noticed on the festival circuit, so it still got plenty of notice as Monocle had gone through all that. And they get noticed for something that is so specific, almost like purge like in a way. And I'll get to that in a little bit, too. I think that's a thing we can talk about. But to go from that to rings, I am still utterly baffled i am still just my head is spinning spinning i i don't really know that's a a really good point it's and it's a huge span of time too it was, it was you know 2015 i think with rings and this movie came out even later it, it was almost a decade yeah it was almost oh gosh that's that's crazy and and you you did mention the crow remake i think part of the reason why he didn't do the crow remake because rings came up <laughs> instead although like you said there's been a billion directors attached to the crow so it's like the schedules there was a conflict but it was like no you you shouldn't have left the crow remake for rings uh because it is but apparently even the ring script was changed a lot so maybe it wasn't so bad when you originally signed on to it because that's that script has been uh, yeah it like went through a blender or something i i can't explain why it's so bad uh but but it is a stark contrast right like there's no like you would never know it's from the same director uh rings feels like the biggest mishmash of studio garbage ever whereas before the fall doesn't have any of those characteristics it's not slick it's it's a lot more gritty it's bright as opposed to dark uh, the thematic content is entirely different. Of course, he had something to do with the script for Before the Fall, but had nothing to do with the script for Rings. So I guess story content can't doesn't really count. Well, let me ask both of you then. Um, you know, the, the traditional Hollywood path, right, is like you make a really good short in order to get that first feature. And then you make that first feature in order to get like some sort of studio property to get into the studio system. That's traditionally the path. So knowing that this was sort of a weird and convoluted timeline for Gutierrez and the fact that I hope he, I hope he's still getting based on this. I hope he's still getting work. I hope that he's in some room somewhere like working on a project. Cause you know, filmmakers can disappear for a decade and have but like work constantly during that time frame and just have nothing to show for it. 
But talk to me. I want I want both of you to weigh in on what you think of uh, before the fall as a statement piece, right? It's that first feature. It's your look at me. I'm a filmmaker. Here's what I've got to say. Here's the stuff that I'm going to do. How does this work for you as as a showcase? Like, what do you feel like? you learned about Gutierrez as a director from the story that he chose to put on screen here. And Becky, as the guest, I'm going to ask you to go first. Sure. So I think it's one hell of a debut feature. Uh, Yes, he had a really impressive short under his belt, Brazil, nothing to do with the other Brazil. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, I'd read that uh, Antonio Banderas basically had started this um, sort of fund production company that was specifically supporting filmmakers from the Andalusian area in Spain. Uh, and that's where he's from. So I think that was, you know, where um, he, he got the attention and kind of had a, a support um, support structure. But to me, it stands out as a statement piece, because when I think about the landscape of genre movies at that time, you had a lot of really dark, depressing stuff. Like horror films were pretty much outwardly nihilistic at this time, right? You had things like Antichrist, The Collector, Grace, Halloween 2, The Last House on the Left, The Strangers, The Ruins, like Martyrs, all these things that were really, really depressing stuff that didn't have a lot of redeeming qualities. Um, Dead Girl, there's another great one that's I actually don't like that movie at all. I'm being sarcastic, sorry. But it is like a really great example of an extremely nihilistic film that has almost no redeeming quality to it whatsoever. Sorry if you like that movie. So all these films that were coming out around that same time, and here you have this movie that on the surface looks super gritty and dark and does have some really, um, I guess, a, a few difficult moments in it uh, without revealing too much the... A person that is out of jail is a child murderer. <laughs> so imagine if like a Freddy Krueger type <laughs> get, gets unleashed, right? But it's a more grounded, realistic version of that. Um, so on the cert, that could be like a really um, dark film, but that is not what is actually presented. It's actually a film that has a lot of hope and is actually anti-nihilist in its approach. And we can talk a bit more about themes later. Um but I think that is a really strong statement as a filmmaker to come out and say, hey, I'm going to participate in this genre space, but I'm going to do it with a message that is completely different, something that is hopeful and is contrary to what's popular right now. Yeah, I'll even just piggyback off of that. And that's part of the reason why I was impressed as well. It's it's a time where dark and gritty was the buzzword. And as Becky said, all these movies that were getting rebooted, essentially, and the remakes uh, at the time, and then you have the French extremism at the same time, really bringing dark and gritty in. So then you go to a different part of the world, and you have a filmmaker who's going to make a debut and that debut has more to say than just dark, gritty violence. Uh, it's going to actually use some of it in the film, it's going to use that as Becky alluded to, there's a child murderer. There are things that aren't easy to watch in this film. And the way that I am struck by it, because it took themes that are prevalent in other films, such as The Purge, and like specifically looking at The Purge, because it's a that's a night of sin. We know what The Purge is. The alarm goes off, and it's just anarchy. That's That's what happens. You're supposed to fulfill your wildest desires, let's say. And the difference here in Before the Fall is... 
you have unleashed that kind of environment. But where it gets me is it's the end of the world. It's 72 hours and all these characters are going to be dead. That's just a fact. There's no kind of twist coming. There's no defense against the meteor. It's three times the size of the one that quote unquote killed the dinosaurs. It's going to destroy Earth. We're all going to die. So you've taken away the sense that there's any survival chance. You've taken away the sense that you get your anger out for a night of purging, but then you go back to normal the next day. No, that's gone before the fall. Literally, it's just you're going to die pretty soon. How are you going to live? And the fact that some characters still choose to live, live as they uh, as they maybe would have in any case, and they still do all of the worst things. And that's just how they want to ride out the next 72 hours. I think that's such an interesting conversation to have because I few films kind of give their characters that deadline and they give them that like, this is final. I'm not fucking with you guys. This is the end of the world. These characters are going to die. And to see it explored in that way, to see it explored in a way that still questions morality and still questions how all these characters will live out the next three days, whether that's just sipping on beer or chasing after a family. It's just, it, it takes a swing. It takes a real big swing and it still does so with hope, but it still does so with a lot of fucking darkness. Yeah, it's the most hopeful, hopeless film there is because it is a futile, futile situation, right? Like there's no, no coming away from this. I, I think it's a lot like Romeo and Juliet in this weird way of where, you know, the star-crossed lovers are going to take their life at, you know, it opens with that line. And yet, as you watch it, you forget and you cheer for them. You want them to survive. You're like, there's no way they're going to do this you're going to will something else to happen instead. And before the fall is very similar, it starts off pretty quickly with this doomsday message of our governments have tried everything. There is absolutely nothing left that we can do. You know, our Armageddon deep impact 2012, all of those efforts have failed. We are all going to die in three days. Peace out. And so you know that every character that you will come to learn about and empathize with throughout the course of this movie is going to be dead, you know, within three days, no matter what. But that doesn't change how much you root for them and care for them throughout. Uh, so I really, I, I, I love that. And I love that, um, you know, just kind of coming back to the whole nihilism concept of it's, it, to me, it's a it's the opposite in the sense that it's like everything you do matters. Every moment is important. Every choice you make has some type of consequence, even if it doesn't to yourself, even if it doesn't impact your fate. Um, another movie I thought of uh, is Happy Death Day. It actually explores a lot of similar themes because, you know, Tree is trying to um, alter her fate. Um, but through the course of it, she learns how to become a better person. Cause at first she's like, it doesn't matter if I'm dead. Like I can do whatever I want <laughs> to other people. Like there's no consequences to my actions, but she actually learns the opposite of that throughout the course of the film. And I think that thematically it's very relevant to this film as well. And that it's, it's like, yeah, you could die in three days, but why does that mean you should choose to be a different person or that what you do now doesn't matter? Like, 
either one of you mats could die tomorrow. Uh, does that change the way you act today? <laughs> like, should it? Does it change the morality or ethics of your decision just because you happen to know your fate? I mean, we will all die someday. No. No, exactly. And I think just the thing I would add to that, too, is it's futile, but futile with stakes. And that's the mm -hmm. big difference, because a lot of the, a lot of films in especially indie horror, they really try to go the nihilism route. Uh, they go the futility route and they really just want to beat you over the head with bleakness. But they don't realize that you have to have stakes to make that hold. You have to have stakes to make us care still. You can make the most depraved film, but if it's not grounded in any kind of uh, stake filled scenario. Why are we still watching? We have to have a reason to watch. And I think before the fall gets away with that, because as, as you have said, it's futile, but I think it's futile to a point where you still have, you care so much as you, as you've alluded to, you still care about these characters and what's going on. And I think that's the biggest trick of the film. That's the biggest thing that Gutierrez uh, does. And, you know, if you're going to make a statement, it's to say, Hey, I'm going to do exactly what everyone else is doing at the time, but I'm going to put my spin on it and I'm still going to make you care in a way that you probably don't care about some of those other movies. Yeah. And it's the way that the the story sets up is really interesting, right? Because the majority of the second half of the film is sort of this cat and mouse game between Alejandro and Lucio or Soro, um, whichever name you want to call him, who's played by the uh, Edward Fernandez, who plays the badass priest, 30 coins, which is just like, you know, an aside, go watch 30 coins. Um, but the kind of the the inciting event, the character, you know, even more so than the world is going to end, the the moral core of this film is Alejandro's mother, Rosa, played by Mariana Cordero. And she makes the decision really early on because the kids are kind of living off the grid a little bit and they have bad reception and they haven't been able to hear the, through the channels that everybody else has been heard. You know, she makes the decision not to tell them. And so the film, as much as everything that happens throughout the film is, is about what y'all are talking about and definitely hits on the idea of like, who are you if there's no tomorrow? There is this element of, of backward looking too. Like, what do I owe my loved ones? What do I owe the sacrifices that people have made for me? And a lot of it becomes Alejandro deciding how far he's willing to, to go with his mother to continue the work that she's trying to do in to protect the kids, whether or not he, you know, I think Happy Death Day is a great example, whether or not he initially wants to be their guardian, whether he wants to be looking out for them, you know, something they explore throughout the film. But that emotional instigating event is his mother and what she's willing to give up to give the gift of ignorance to her grandchildren. And that kind of that adds an emotional core to their relationship that allows that allows the film to pivot and start doing the serial killer, like almost like South Korean kind of like cat and mouse stuff um, exists in this as well it allows the film to go to those weird places where you're like, are they really mashing up these two genres? And that emotional current, that emotional core of what the mother sacrificed or the grandmother sacrificed bridges. It works as the glue that holds those two things together in a way that as I was getting into the movie, I was like, how is, is this going to, are they going to be able to do this, these two things? And I was like, oh, okay. All you need to have is one good character, one good moral concept that you build around. And then, okay, I, I get what you're doing and you can put these two kind of seemingly different genres together and make it work. Yeah, I, I think the other interesting point you you raise with, which is the gift of ignorance. And there's a lot of tension in the film about whether or not to tell the children at varying points. Almost, you know, at, at the end, there's even a moment about it, even after everything that they go through. Um, there's still this uh, need to preserve innocence. Um, and I think that's a really interesting question in general. Like me as a parent, I think about, similar things all the time, obviously not under the same situation, thank God, but it's more about the idea of how much do you tell your kids? How much, how, how long do you let them 
hang on to this world where things are are much better than they they see they they are in reality and i i always you know think about that with my daughter gwen um you know sometimes she'll ask a question it's like oh do i really want to tell her the real reason people do this or do i want to let her hang on to this idea that most people are genuinely pretty good um and i still haven't quite figured out the right balance and i think the film does a good job of kind of presenting that in a nuanced way where you can see the benefits of letting the kids know that their lives are soon going to be over so that you know they they understand what's happening maybe they have a right to know but at the same time you you get these shots of them you know just playing being kids you know picking up a kitten and playing with it playing ball in the backyard um and like it, it's it feels like a crime to rob that beauty from them uh, in in their last moments on earth. Well, that even goes into the uh, arcade sequence where uh, Alejandro has a moment of, I guess, clarity to call in a way where all the kids are kind of mad at him. They think he's going, quote unquote, mad because he is trying to defend them from the lunatic outside who will not go because he's there for. Alejandro's brother and the brother's not showing up. So he's like, I've, I've got nothing to do. It's the end of the world. I'll just wait here for my, uh, my target to show up. Of course, the kids don't know this and Alejandro's doing his best. And, you know, there's a moment where he chases, uh, sorrow as, you know, he's referred to in ways away and they're at the, they're at the breakfast table, dinner table, whatever table they're eating at. And he's like, we're going to the arcade. And it's such an interesting moment because you're so far in the film and you know, the ta- like the city is in ruins at this point where people have run out. People have murdered people have, they've purged. They've done their purge in the city and Alejandro has gotten away from it, but he's like, you know what? Like these kids are still, there's a little bit of innocence left and there's a little bit of hope I can still give them. So yeah, I'm going to take him. I'm going to put him in a van. I'm going to drive him through this freaking apocalypse torn dystopian city with blindfolds on and bring them to an arcade just so they can play arcade games for a little bit. And again, you're sitting there going like, how are you going to get away with this? Number one, still, he plays some little cheesy I spy games again with blindfolds so they don't see the dead bodies they're passing in the van. And like they get to the arcade and he just brings them inside and he's still just holding a shotgun everything just works together in this way that you're so like you're, I, I was engrossed in what's going on because he still cares about these kids. He cares about them more, even though he knows as we've talked about already, the world's going to end and he's becoming a better character. So late in the film where it almost seems pointless, but also that's where you generate the empathy from. It's, it's, it's this really interesting blend of everything. And that's, I think again, that's what Gutierrez does really well. He, he injects these little moments of humanity and personal connection where any other filmmaker might have just gone the straight depraved route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to what Matt Monagle was saying earlier uh, regarding the blend of the genres, I think Gutierrez's uh, visual design is play works really well. And is what helps make it feel very seamless. Like you do have this sci-fi disaster movie paired with this serial killer horror thriller thing going on, but the way the script and the visual storytelling plays out, the disaster is always secondary. It's always in the background of its characters. Like both 
metaphorically and literally like there are a lot of scenes where there's something happening in the foreground and you kind of see you know a little bit of like comets in the distance and I think some of these were practical decisions because they did not have the budget to make a huge epic disaster movie but I think it also complements the story really well because it grounds it in these characters and then it also plays back into these themes of Yes, the end of the world may be happening, but what's happening here at our dinner table is far more important. What's happening at this arcade, what's, you know, the the interactions I have with my loved ones is what matters the most. And and then, you know, going on that thread of this this whole film has this very um it it is a gritty film, but it's not a dark and I mean that um in the uh, color palette sense. It's a very bright film actually, because uh, it, it does take place in the desert and it's, it feels really hot and bright and vibrant. And then it's contrasted with these really dark nighttime scenes where it almost looks black and white. It's so desaturated. And so it's, it's really void, whether it be the bright desert landscape or the night, it's really void of, of color. Um, so it does really play into this this desolation um, and I guess the sort of futility of the story and all the warmth has to come from the, the characters themselves, their personalities. And, but that blends, it helps, it helps blend the horror aspects of it because there are certain scenes in this film that I think in the, in the hands of a different director would not be scarier or you, you wouldn't get the sense of suspense, but the very f- you know, the first few times you see um, Soro, he, like, even, you don't see his face at first. You just see kind of, like, this body. Like, he's still a terrifying, menacing presence, even though you you barely know him just by the way he's shot. Um, there's this scene where uh, he jumps onto the hood of a car, and it is, to me, like, really scary. <laughs> the, and... I think if a, like somebody was shoot, you could shoot that from more of like an action perspective where it's like really thrilling um, and it just looks really cool. But instead it's like, who is this guy? It's like grounded, but he almost has this supernatural aura about him to where he's, he's just as menacing as the comets outside. Um, so, so I feel like because of that, that visual design, um, it, it not only reinforces the thematic importance of the characters and the story it's trying to tell, but it also makes for this cohesive feel with two very different genres. Yeah. I mean, you forget about the comments at a certain point. Like that, that is the thing where you just kind of forget the comments are there at a certain point. And that is a testament to the focus and the drive that is behind the human elements that are getting corrupted and corroded and, or are blossoming in, in this unprecedented of time. Yeah, but I, I like I like kind of Becky the way you were talking about that and Donato what you were saying too, because the comets the comets pop up at these weird moments of almost like clarity in the film, right? Where like there are scenes where these two characters are like, you know, wrestling in the dirt or where they're like menacing the shit out of each other. And then like the northern lights pop, or you see a comet go back down in the distance, and you see these moments of like coherence flash over especially the Soro character multiple times of like oh yeah that's right the world is ending they they almost it almost pops into this like for good and bad they get sort of sort of swept up in their own their own bullshit and their own immediate needs and desires and the things they want to do 
but it be, that those those moments of disaster become these weird flourishes where these characters are pulled out of the immediate and they have to like you get a real sense of of almost awe and like scope in those moments where you know you're like oh this is this is ter- the thing that's going on around them is terrifying and now they're on the ground punching each other again as it should be but it's it's those weird like flashes of lucidity like almost waking up for a dream for a second and then going back in that like it, it it's a flourish that he, I think he only does maybe two maybe three times throughout the film where the characters are pulled out of what they're doing by the thing that's going on around them, but it adds such kind of like a weird ethereal nature to it. It really it really really worked for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awe. The the word you said awe is exactly what came to mind. I think that is the one thing that unites every human being is kind of the the awe of the world, right? There are some natural occurrences that anybody that sees them would be like, wow, even if you are an insane child murderer or you are, you know, in the case of Alejandro, a down on his luck, half drunk dude, half the time, you kind of just have to stop and look up every now and then. It's this amazing dose of perspective that no matter what's going on in your world, it is, it is small compared to what's out there. Uh, so I agree. I think those moments are really well punctuated in the film because they are so rare. Um, it, I don't think they'd be as impactful. Like you'd get kind of disaster numbified <laughs> or something, you know, like uh, what's the, like in war movies, you get kind of uh, battle fatigue like you get that in a lot of disaster movies where it's like, oh, wow, I saw the Eiffel Tower blow up. Cool. To where it, like, it has no meaning at a certain point. But because in this film it's so mm-hmm. subdued, it has more meaning almost, even though it's it's like little small bits and pieces of it. It's, it's the wonder of existence still. It's a movie about the world ending and it still becomes this going beyond awe, going beyond all these things, you know, you take a step back and you look up, as you just said, and Alejandro may only have three more days to live, but he still has three days to live on this crazy fucking planet that we still don't understand how we even exist on. So there's always the duality happening. There's always the conscious choice to play both sides where a normal disaster flick, it's the end of the world and you're trying to survive. That's what you're trying to do. That is the fight. Bruce Willis is going to save the world and he's going to sacrifice himself. And yay, everything's happy. No, this is literally about people are going to die. And yet it's still a miracle that they're alive for three more days and what they choose to do with those three days. It, it It's very smart in that sense. It's an intelligent, compact little thriller that should be on a bigger scale. And it should be this like more massive project. But it's not because Gutierrez doesn't care about the disaster itself. Gutierrez cares about the ripple effects that are happening and what what that drives people towards. It's it's a very nice little uh, little lockbox kind of film, which is weird to say because it's still in an open range kind of place. But it is almost like a lockbox film to me. Well, let me ask in a a second, I'm going to ask about our normal question about this movie being forgotten. How do we rediscover it? But I want to ask one more question about the film. And I'm actually going to ask Donato to go first, because I feel like bad guys are sort of your forte. Like you're going to have some good conversation stuff about this. So Gutierrez has talked about the fact that like this movie was really, he did not write the first draft, but he came in and punched up, um, got a co-writer credit on the screenplay. And the original draft he said was extremely influenced by Night of the Hunter. Um, He said that, you know, the punch-ups that he did too were extremely influenced by a lot of early Hitchcock movies 
And through that lens, you see Lucio Orsoro, the Eduard Fernandez character, like he's a very classical kind of villain. Like he is a he's a, a creepy and like low EQ, like you never he, he's got that Robert Mitchum vibe a little bit to him. So Donato and then Becky, I want to hear for people that are like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like end of the world and like, oh, are we going to die? Are we happy? Yeah, yeah, I get all that. How's the serial killer stuff? Talk to me. Talk to me about what Eduardo Fernandez does for you in this movie. And if he makes a delicious enough of a villain for people that want to see like the monster element of this film. Yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned Night of the Hunter because there are these almost, you know, there are these roll shots where Lucio appears and he's just kind of hanging out and he he's we see him earlier trying to basically persuade a child of candy we see all the pretty easy tells that he is a compassionate killer like one of those killers who is going to do all the nice things to try to you know sway you and he wins over the kids immediately he lets them listen to his car radio they're all huddled around they're all you know chumming it up and he seems like the teddy bear at first and to bring again to bring up night of the hunter it's a great compa- comparison shot because Alejandro sees what's going on. Everyone else around does not see what's going on. And there's this one shot specifically. I, I still remember because it's so weird to me. It sells the menace in a way that is kind of on the nose because it's this madman just outside washing his hands very vigorously. Like he is scrubbing his hands like a crazy amount. And Alejandro goes outside to see what's going on. And you just have uh, Lucio just really rubbing his hands, really going at it under a faucet. And he's just staring at him. And he's just like, it's this act of purification and this act of cleanliness. But he's just not breaking eye contact with Alejandro. And he's just like, yeah, I'm staying here. I don't care. I ain't going anywhere. You're screwed. And that moment sells a lot of the villainy to me. And that sells the unhinged nature where... Sure, you've teased me already with shots where Lucio goes in the, his trunk. You're like, is he going to get a weapon? No, he gets a folding chair and he just plops it outside and he's just like, I'm going to sit here. What a nice guy. Yeah, he hops in the car. He's just standing there looking out into the distance and, you know, again, talking to the kids. And there's that wonder thing going on. Like, oh, he's just he's just a nice guy, you know, looking at the sky. No, then he flips the switch. And when you get to the actual serial killer aspects of the uh, film, it's almost like he's disgruntled and exhausted in a way that, you know, he's done this so many times and, you know, this is just this is just a reaction for him. And the way that he kind of just snatches the kids and, you know, we're at the part where we can say he snatches the children because he's still trying to get back at Alejandro and his brother. And there are things done to the children which are very horrific. And that's where the horror and terror of this film comes in. But the way that he does it without even there's no remorse. There's no nothing. He is one of those killers that st- that sells stone cold on his face. Pretty gosh darn well to the point where he's Alejandro is climbing up an elevator shaft and he's enraged. He's enraged by what he's seen and he is going to kill Lucio. Lucio is just standing at the top of the shaft, just looking down at him, just kind of like dumping gasoline and just kicking shit on him. Like, I don't fucking care. This is my job. I guess I have to do this. It's it's sold. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a hard sell for the villain, but, uh, I want to give credit to uh, Lucio. He, he does it. He pulls it off. It's funny you mentioned that uh, hand washing scene. It's something that's very simple, but there's something about, I think it's uh, the performance by Fernandez paired with Gutierrez's direction 
and uh, the shutter speed at which the hand, the the camera, it's, it's almost like they have this frenetic element. It's like a Saving Private Ryan, kind of like where you see, you know, like every granule of dust and dirt. You kind of see every little like sud and soap bubble. It's like the way you would shoot action, but he's just washing his hands. And I remember when uh, I watched that, I watched it with Brad and introduced him to the movie. He turned to me and said, why was that so disturbing? I can't understand why the image of this man washing his hands like really got to me. And I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with it's not only is the way that it it's shot from a technical perspective, but it's also thematically, it's an act of purity. It's an act of cleanliness with a human being that is completely the opposite, um, as evil as they can be, right? And yet he's sitting there really concerned about having clean hands. And I think the the irony or the duality of that is really unsettling. And uh, yeah, like, and, and also just the idea of this person camping out outside your house saying, I'm going to wait here until your brother gets home. I have nothing better to do. And like the dedication, the patience, the fact that he's not like, I'm going to bust into the house and start killing everybody right now. Like there's something that's to me much more disturbing about a killer that is so dedicated that he's willing to wait people out that long. He's He sits out there for it. It's probably going to be like at least 12 hour i mean it's the whole day at least and then throughout the night uh so like, i i don't know a lot of people that would do that for for good reasons <laughs> um so so i think just that entire concept is really disturbing and i think another thing with fernanda's performance performance like anybody that can make someone look menacing when they're literally wearing like this long sleeve button up shirt with a little funky design on it like he mm -hmm. looks like he just is going out for a night in vegas with what he's dressed as like that is not something i would ever think to like it's not how i would dress like a, a killer in my mind but i think he has this quality about him where he like he exists in his own world where this is just comfortable this is casual friday to him he's and he also happens to kill people and i think that makes it more disturbing the fact that he's dressed however the hell he wants. He's has time to sit and relax. He wants to make sure his hands are clean. He wants to listen to his tunes on the radio. Like all those things just put him in this level of ease and comfort to where like, if you were on this huge, you know, vengeance quest, I can't imagine being so comfortable doing that. And I think the fact that he is makes him extremely menacing just because it is not within the realm of normal human behavior whatsoever. Now, Mon Monagle astutely said uh, South Korean horror before and to talk about that scene again, just not at length because we just did, but he savors it. He's savoring every moment of sitting outside that house. This is not a chore for him. He is loving the fact that he is in Alejandro's head and he can use the kids against him. Everything he's doing is calculated. Everything he's doing is maniacal and everything he's doing is bringing him enjoyment. And that's why it's horrifying. That is where that is where I think the performance sells the hardest. So absolutely taking this. I, you know, I saw the devil, something of that nature where the cat and mouse is violent, brutal, and that is more in your face aggressive. But there is still the idea that the chase is just as fun for some of these people. So 
the chase element here is more of a Wild West standoff than it is an actual foot race, but the savoring of every morsel is still there. That is that is the performative value here. Yep, exactly. That That is the equivalent of the, you know, sort of good, the bad, and the ugly standoff at the end where it's like savoring, you know, the cutting back and forth between the belts, the face, now a little closer on the face, and now the just the eyes of that kind of wind up before before the the action is very similar it's like a drawn out version of that over the course of you know a day um during the film before you get kind of the action at the end yeah and the only thing i'll add to that is i i just i love the hand washing example Donato, and i think this is a really good master class and a lot of people try and create killers and give them weird ticks that are supposed to serve as counterpoint like gentleness that's supposed to serve as counterpoint to how violent they are i think of buscemi and con air is kind of an example of that like like Bush, love Buscemi, not a not a particularly great character, you know the like Jesus loves me singing and then like the serial killer stuff. Like it's a little, I it's a little on the nose, right? It's it's when you it's when you find ways to soften up to add that element of gentleness to your killer character, and it doesn't feel like it's it feels like a natural offshoot of the character. It doesn't feel like the script was calling for you to be like, we'll show how evil he is by showing how not evil he is in these moments. I think that, that that really works for me. You guys can yell at me at another time if you, if you really love Buscemi and Connor. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, yeah, no, we're fighting about another that's thing fine. now. That's, that's all fine. right. So last question then. All right, I'll put the bunny back it's in the good. box. You guys, everybody Never here mind. is fine. It, it's fine. We all have opinions on movies. Then the last question before we wrap today is the one we always ask, talking about how a movie like Before the Fall can find its audience. You know, obviously we were all sort of flabbergasted coming into the conversation about how this film had nothing to show for it. You know, even among kind of a period of horror fans and doomsday fans where there was a lot of movies coming out that this would have been like a perfect, you know, this should be, this should be a Reddit thread movie, right? This should be like, if you like post-apocalyptic movies, you should watch blah, 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 right? It is that caliber of a movie that, that communities should hold up as an example of an off the beaten path thing. And it's just not there. So Becky, let's start with you. How does Before the Fall get its, uh, get its moment in the sun, get its 72 hours of happiness? <laughs> Uh, well, I think it needs to be available on more platforms. (laughs) First of all, uh, I would love to see, um, I I don't know who owns the rights. I don't know if that's what part of the issue is, is it's a distribution thing. Um, and so I, I, I would love, I would love to see that happen. I would love to see, um, it, you know, it, it paired with other films. I'd love to see more people talking about it in, in the post-apocalyptic cinema conversation. And I think uh, COVID and quarantine has brought up a lot of these conversations with people. Um, you know, and the panel I was referencing on was a digital panel because it was all during COVID and that was the theme people were talking about. So I think it's a good time to, to be thinking about, you know, when we don't have control over what's going on in our world when things seem really out of control or seem hopeless, it's really great to have a a message and a story that talks about the ways that we can regain control over certain elements of our lives, over the choices we make every day. And as people, um, I, I think one of the interesting ways that films do find a new audience now is like getting an American remake, right? Like it's a Spanish language film. People don't like to read subtitles, whatever. So, but 
I wouldn't mind if someone remade this with their own take on the same subject matter. But as long as it meant like other people would come find <laughs> this movie instead. So I don't know. Is that is that kind of the answer you were hoping for? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I will confirm because I was literally going to sit here and say, I know this is going to be an unpopular answer, but I would love an American remake of this to drive audiences back to seeing the original. I, I mean, it's the only thing that we can kind of grasp at when we hear something like Sputnik, which came out last year and is on Hulu. Like it's available to the mass audiences. Everyone can see this movie, but it's already getting a remake by Matt Reeves's company as a, or, you know, Reeves has signed on to produce a remake of it. I don't immediately say, oh, this is stupid. Go watch the original, blah, 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 because I know how the general consumer still watches films. And I know as much as we are privileged to be in circles where we hang out with people who like to watch the subtitles, we like to watch the originals and then see what the remake does. A lot of people don't. So if something like a Sputnik can get that remake and all of a sudden everyone goes and watches Sputnik because it's on Hulu and everyone can find the original just as easy. I'm hoping for the same thing for Before the Fall, because I think, Becky, as you said, like this is a scenario where you can have fun with your remake. It doesn't have to be straight up the same because what has to be there is the 72 hours and the meteor. What doesn't have to be there is exactly what happened to Alejandro and how you treat those characters. So you could do a remake and it still draws attention to an original film that is different. And it still has that value that say, you know, why would I watch Cabin Fever when the remake does the exact same thing? Some of that crap. You avoid that here. Yeah. So I do believe that a remake is probably the best way to go, because as Monogle and I talk on every episode about how do we, you know, how do we re re resurrect i guess is the right word these films and i don't want to say that they're dead but they're forgotten away so how do we get people watching them and why didn't they i think the why didn't they here is one of those clear-cut cases of festivals weren't as popular as they are right now in the general public right now there are so many horror festivals that are easily accessible to wider audiences now that probably would have changed things for before the fall if it was that kind of a scenario and also it went to ifc midnight and it went to ifc midnight at a time or sorry, not Midnight. I take it back. Went to IFC Films. Right. So I don't know if Midnight was a thing yet. So that might have been playing into it. Or it just went to IFC Films and it did its VOD release most likely. And it had its, probably had a small opening at IFC Theater. But at the time in the early 2000s, we didn't look at those kind of films in the same way. And again, we talk about all the time about how they got ignored because, oh, straight to VOD, stigma, blah, blah, blah. I definitely think that is the biggest case here for a Spanish language film that went straight to VOD and was probably branded as horror. So that was just like a, it was like three strikes for general public and critics at the time, most likely. So it's, it's okay. this, the more we talk about it, it becomes this frustrating thing of like all these good ass movies that got ignored just because people were up in arms about things that went straight to VOD or things that had a small opening at the time. And, you know, we, we have the data now we know they were good things there, but I don't know. We were, we were uh, having a different conversation back then. It sucks. Yeah, it probably would have done better under IFC Midnight as a label mm -hmm. just because it actually has like the genre audience would actually go see it. Um, I think one other thing I forgot to mention that I would say would be nice is for F. Javier Gutierrez to actually get another shot at something that isn't the shitty Rings yeah. movie. Like, because like I said, rings. that movie's not bad because of his direction, in my opinion. I don't, I think it's 80% of the 
the failure of that movie is the script. Uh, that said, I say failure, but a movie made bank off of its budget. And so it's not like, so part of me was wondering, like, has he not worked again because of that movie? But then I'm like, well, it made all its money back, which, as we know, is probably one of the biggest contributors to directors not getting work is making a film that doesn't make its money back. Um, unless they blew it all on a marketing, marketing mm. budget, maybe. But I don't know. So I hope he gets a, to make another film. And I think um, if if he's able to make an, an, another great film, maybe someone else will like want to explore his filmography and skip over rings and then go see Before the Fall. Well, that sounds like a pretty good place, I think, to leave that. Go go see this. Don't go see Rings. Um, we seem to have pretty much critical consensus on there. <laughs> go dig up Brazil, his short film, if you can. It's got to be on Vimeo or YouTube or one of those platforms. But um, that is it. That is our conversation about Before the Fall. So, Becky, I want to give you this last opportunity here to promote yourself. You know, If people liked what they heard about you, liked what they heard about your taste in horror films, because you kind of gave them a little bit of a cross-section, a little bit of flavor there. Um, I think I think I kind of know what you're about a little bit more hearing some of the movies that you compare favorably and unfavorably to. What's the best place for for people to follow you on social media? Um, where should they go to find out about upcoming projects? Sure. Uh, at Becky M. Sayers on Twitter is probably the best place. I don't really use Facebook and Instagram all that much. So Twitter um, and then uh, you can search for Suburban Ghost on YouTube or Vimeo if you want to check out uh, some of our our content there and yeah, where's that where's paper street that's about it where's paper me. street located at are you guys on all the paper street yes paper street podcast is the other thank you for reminding i'm really bad at plugging things i do uh paper street podcast is on all the you know you can get on spotify or um itunes whatever um or you can just google it <laughs> there you go so I, I would encourage you to go look up the things that Becky's done that she forgot to encourage you to go look up because this is a team effort here at Certified Forgotten. <laughs> Donato, uh, where do people go to check out your stuff? I'm going to make it nice and easy. Just Google Matt Donato, obviously. Matt Donato, best film critic, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It'll all come up with it. Uh, or you can follow me at Donato Bomb. Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram. You can follow my writing along there. You know, I'm always reviewing things. You know, I'm always posting things. So yeah, if you like what you hear, follow at Donato bomb and also keep listening. Okay. You, you, I had to, cause you said Google Matt Donato best film critic. I did that. And the first non like Metacritic or rotten tomatoes or author page thing, the first piece of content that comes up is your top 10 films of 2013 from, we got this covered. So there you go. Wow. There you go. <laughs> I hate that. Don't Google that and definitely don't <laughs> click anything by We Got This Covered. Authory has a great feature now. Find my Authory page where anything We Got This Covered related is now just on my Authory and you can just click that and you don't have to give them a click. It's wonderful. Uh, sorry, We Got This Covered, but not really. All right. As for myself, you can follow me on social media at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Do please check out the Certified Forgotten website. Um, we are now on Instagram at, at Certified Forgotten, which is just a place for us to fuck around with some more cool image stuff that we're doing. So give us a follow there. Uh, follow the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all the places you'd expect. And yeah, we have been blessed with some really awesome writing these last couple of weeks. So we would encourage you to go check that out. Go check out some of the new contributors we have on the site. They seriously really fucking kick ass. We're, we're very, very lucky website hosts. And that is it. Uh, Becky, I want to say thank you so much for giving up your evening and coming to talk to us. As we've established, you have like a million things going on right now. So it really means a lot that we could be one of those things. 
Aw, thank you so much. I was totally honored to come on here. I love both of you guys, and I love talking movies, so uh, it's uh, any time, in well, other words. We're going to hold you to that. Any, any chance to spout off about horror movies, I'm I'm in. Well, that means we got another return guest on our hands then, because she's committed. You heard that. Verbal contract. It, it's legal in Texas. Donato, my friend. Matt knows I had a huge <laughs> list of movies I could have talked about. That is so. true. I did hear that. Yeah. Donato, my man, how are you taking us out today? Ring sucks. <laughs> that's that's more.